This morning, we're coming to um, the last message in our study of 2 John. So today is the last day of 2 John, and I know that you're going to doubt this, but I believe that we're going to do 3 John next Sunday in one sermon. So a whole book of the Bible in one sermon. And uh, I believe that we'll even give it justice in that. Um, but uh, last Sunday, we looked at message five, and the title of last Sunday's message was, Can't Say It Enough, Watch Out for Deceivers. And we saw that this really is the main concern that John has that he's dealing with in Second John. But this morning, we come to the second part of that. And we see a very strong statement from John. So message number six, as you see at the, at the top of your outline, is do not tolerate or accommodate deceivers. Do not tolerate or accommodate the deceivers. Now, there's a gentleman named D.A. Carson that's had an impact in my life. He's had an impact in my life through the books that he's written. Um, certain, certain theology books. He's a Bible scholar, a great, um, I believe, man of God with some real helpful things. A few years ago, he wrote a book called The Intolerance of Tolerance. And we see that in this day and time. Everybody's been talking about be tolerant, be tolerant, be tolerant. And what is kind of interesting is in all of this tolerance, seeking to move um, our culture to accepting things, um, that really are against traditional values, because that's where this debate started. Um, why, why are you being intolerant, uh, they would say. Um, it's interesting, D.A. Carson points out something that has happened, and it, it seems appropriate for me to mention it as we come into this, this message where we are told not to tolerate certain things. But notice here what it says. Um, and this is D.A. Carson's quote, the traditional use of the word tolerance was, I may disagree with you, but I insist on your right to articulate your opinion, no matter how stupid or ignorant I think it is. That used to be tolerance. But something interesting has happened. Notice, he says, but now tolerance means that you must not say anybody is wrong. You have to say that all positions are equally valid. Well, here we see a text of the Bible where we see very clearly that God's Word is telling us, be very careful about this. It, you, 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 there are certain things that you must not do in receiving those who deceive the people of God, that you can be kind to people, but you do not give quarter to their folly. Now, for a long time, the evangelical church has been lowering its guard. For the last hundred years, in fact, through the movement of classical liberalism, we have been increasingly walking away from what the Scripture actually says. So in the deeper recesses of philosophy and in the early philosophies of the 18th century and then the 19th century, as they eventually make the, the impact of those philosophies come in, completely questioning everything that God says, those things have made their way into our theological schools. Because they were in our theological schools, they came into the pulpits of our culture, the pulpits of Europe as well as the pulpits of America. And so we let down our guards. And so church after church, denomination after denomination has wandered away from the truth. Well, this letter is being written to churches who 2,000 years ago were being tempted to wander away from the truth. And so it's right that we look at this in review. Notice here on your outline the text that is here. And um, I just want to point out these side markers for a moment. The first part of this letter dealt with the importance of the truth. 
the second part of the letter was saying, you must love one another. This is our key witness, is to love one another. If you claim the, the, the life of Christ, you are to love and to care for one another. This was the second great commandment after the first being loving God. And then notice there, last week, we looked at verse 7 through 11, beware of what? Beware of deceivers. Beware of deceivers. Let's read verse 7, and look what it says here as we come into our text, which I've underlined this morning. Notice all of that that's underlined in 9, 10, and 11 is our main text, and we'll also cover the... um, the uh, final conclusion. But look at verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Remember they were saying, oh yeah, Jesus Christ came, but he wasn't really in the flesh. He was a phantom. He was a spirit. He didn't really die physically on the cross. You see, that's where this goes, is that when you start making statements like that and you start allowing Greek philosophy and various other things to creep into your story that has been told to you from the people who had seen him face to face and seen him um, and heard him, when, when they start altering the statement, people who weren't around start changing the story and allowing philosophy to m- allow it to, quote unquote, make more sense, then it alters the message and it not only alters the message, it alters the function even of what was claimed by Scripture and claimed by God's plan to save us. So he says, these people are denying that Jesus came in the flesh, middle of verse 7, Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Circle it. This is what we looked at last week, verse 8. Look at those two words. What does it say? Okay, that was very weak. Verse 8 begins with what? Watch yourselves. Circle that. Watch yourselves. This is worth your attention. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Now, here we go with verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now we're going to see why in the world would the Bible tell us to not receive someone into our house? Why would the Bible tell us not to even perhaps greet someone? And I believe that this will become clear as we go. So number one, review from last week, John emphasizes the truth of walk, the importance of walking in the truth and walking in love. We've already said that. Number two, John's main concern is that they are filling in aware of and resist any deceivers that come along because there were many of them going from church to church in that day. And we see that this problem of deceivers, look at the first bullet point, we see this problem presented throughout God's Word. Even in the Old Testament, there were false prophets who would come along. There were false kings. There were false speakers and leaders that would come along that would lead God's people astray or seek to lead God's people astray. Notice this, second bullet point. In this case, it is an attack on the true nature of Jesus. And this affects much, which we've already said. So they're, they're doubting who Jesus really was. Now, there can be many different types of false belief. Um, we could go into a long list of them. In this case, it was doubting that Christ had actually come in the flesh. Look at the third bullet point there. He commands vigilance. We already read it together. Watch yourselves so that the Christian may not lose Christ's what? reward. And we looked at that briefly at the end of the service. A couple of you said, man, what was that all about? Rewards at the end. Boy, that was another bomb you dropped right at the end of the sermon. And as soon as somebody called me and said, pastor, can you talk to me about that? And I said, well, did you look up the verses that I gave you to look up? Uh, No. 
you have the notes for a reason, church family. Take them home and look over them. There's a lot here. I, I want to give you more than you can take in in this little 20 minutes we have together. Is it, do I preach about 20 minutes? Is that right? Okay. <laughs> Whatever it is. Um, seems like 20 minutes to me. But anyways, I, I want you to take the notes home. And I want you to allow God to continue to speak to you. I want you to see what is here because there's so very much in God's word that is worthy of our attention. I want to encourage you to be one who comes and really studies from him. Yes, so we see that in the text. Watch it, verse 8, watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. And the scripture talks a lot about God's rewards. Well, verse 9 and 10 and 11 bring us to this, fill this in, the great error of altering or leaving the gospel of Christ. This is the great error. That's what was happening. There were people that were going on ahead from where God was. And I want you to see this in verse 9. Um, we see that phrase um, everyone who goes on ahead. Well, this is a particular word, pro-agao, pro-agao, which means it's the idea of going too far or leaving. Um, it's the idea of leaving those whom you are with. Um, now, it's not always too far. It's just simply from where you are. This same verb is used numerous times when it says that Jesus in the Gospels was with the disciples, but then he went on ahead of them somewhere else. We see that. He went on ahead across the lake. Sometimes he would go. And the point was, he was leaving where they were. That's how the verb is used when it's used in reference to talking about Jesus or other individuals in the New Testament going somewhere else. The point is, they were leaving. And so when we apply that, to the problem of these deceivers, these deceivers are saying, hey, the gospel says this, but let me tell you even more. And then they're making up new things. Now, there's a lot of different reasons they may do that. They may be doing that to tickle the ears of the hearers, telling them things that they want to hear. Think, oh, I like that. Oh, that's a neat concept. Or maybe it's intellectually stimulating. Or maybe it's, it's just a, a positive message of some sort. Some teachers would do that in order to get a following. Other teachers would do that in order to somehow manipulate the people to give them what they want. Whether it would be more money or whether it would be sex or whether it would be power. We see that that was a huge problem in the New Testament. There were false teachers that would come along and listen to this, they would use the gospel for their own gain. They would use the gospel for their own sinfulness. And do we not see that in this day and time? Do we not hear over and over again, we can't have a month go by that some high profile religious person is exposed as having some extremely immoral and false um, lifestyle that is not at all in keeping with the scripture, and then everything else begins to come out. I mean, just in Miami, this last, um, in the last two weeks, that has happened. A man that would use the church credit card and the things that are around him to... Um, to fund his adulterous relationships at a very prominent church. My friends, this is dealing with something that's very important for us. This is dealing with something that we need to recognize that Satan is always going to attack the people of God through false leaders and false prophets who change the gospel, and they have their own reasons for doing it. God's word warns us, we said it last week, you can't say it enough over and over and over again, so we must be vigilant for those who go ahead, those who add to the gospel. And it's not always just about sex or money. Um, sometimes it is just about the whole theological misunderstandings. There are some 
who are quote unquote very moral people and very prudent people who have very bad theology and lead people in very bad directions. Um, and that's part of what we see that is here. Notice he, it's in verse 9, it goes on ahead, going too far, leaving. Notice the context as provided by the next phrase. And the next phrase is, and, and we see this um, in verse 9 and verse 10, and does not abide in the teaching. Look what it says in verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead, and what does it say after that? And does not abide in the teaching of Christ. Now, the word abide is really important. It's meno. Um, and notice what it says here on your outline. It means to remain. It means to stay. It means to dwell. Fill it in. It means to wait. It doesn't mean to, to get impatient and leave. It doesn't mean to feel dissatisfied and add something new. It says, no, to remain here. And so look at verse 9 again. Look, it says, everyone who goes on ahead and does not remain in the teaching of Christ, look what it says, does not have God. Well, let's remember who's writing this. John is writing this. John, the youngest of the disciples, at this point the oldest, um, uh, probably church leader, because all of the other disciples have already been martyred at this point. And look what he writes. He says, remember that the, or excuse me, I wrote this here, remember that the apostle John has been with Jesus for his entire, excuse me, for Jesus' entire earthly ministry. So John was present. He was there walking with him. Look what it says. He had heard Jesus' teachings and saw everything he did. And after Christ ascended, very important, John remained in Christ. John did not go on ahead. John did not make up new things. John remained in the truth. And so John was saying, so this is a guy who had been with Jesus face to face, who knew what the truth was, and he was calling, he is calling us to do the same thing. Now, that word abide is really important, and I, I just, I, I want to share with you what, one of the sweetest passages of Scripture, um, John 15, and I remember when I began to walk with the Lord, how John 15 jumped off the page at me um, when I was about 20 years of age. And um, yes, I have a, a, a graphic here of a, of a vine, a grapevine. And we want to read this passage and see the illustration that Jesus gives us. And, of course, I want you to notice the repetition of the word abide. Jesus is speaking, and he says in verse 1, I am the what? The true vine. Okay, do you see this emphasis on truth? God is always reminding us, you live in a fallen world. There are falsehoods all around you. I am the true vine. It, that, that's just a, something you need to start to get in your brain in all of your Bible reading is that we live in a world of falsehoods. And God's word has been given us so we can know the truth. This is the truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. You will know me. And when you know me, you can be set free. So notice this. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. So the vine dresser is the one who maintains the vines so they produce. Look at verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it for what reason? That it may bear more fruit. Verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Now he says, abide in me. He said, you're clean. I've spoken to you. You've come to me. Now stay with me, is what he's saying. Look what he says in verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Underline it. 
for apart from me, you can do nothing. I remember the moment when I read that and it gripped me for the first time. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. Verse 7, if you abide in me, and look what it says, and my what? My words. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, that's very important, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. See, when we're, when we're so in tune with his word, when we're so in tune with his will, we ask and God works. This is part of that thing of learning. How do we walk and how do we pray in tune with his will? He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and underline that, and so prove to be my disciples. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, wow, circle the word if. That's a very important word in that sentence. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So here we see the importance of not going on ahead. Here we see the importance of not adding to what Jesus has done. Here we see the importance of not coming up with something new. Watch out for those who have a new word from the Lord. We need to be very careful about new words from the Lord. God has given us his word. He has spoken to us very, very clearly. He has comprehensively revealed his word to us, and his spirit illumines that in our minds and our hearts we need, it doesn't mean that God can't direct us and doesn't mean that God can't help us see things in a new light. That, that absolutely can happen, and God does that sometimes. Sometimes he moves us in a new direction. But my friends, when we begin to walk away from orthodoxy of what he has said, we go into very, very dangerous and disastrous territory. I want you to see these statements here. Abiding in Christ cannot be separated from abiding in the teachings of Christ, the teaching of Christ. You say, okay, well, it's one thing to abide in Jesus. Well, what does that really mean? Well, we see here his words are important. So if, if you just are looking for an emotional experience in your quiet time every day, I just want to abide in him, I just want to abide in him, I want my emotions, you know, and, and you're trying to spend time with God apart from his word, my friend, you're opening yourself up to all kinds of deception. The greatest way that you can abide in Jesus and experience Jesus is to be in his word, letting his words flow over you and letting the truth of God's word become more and more alive to you, to understand his word and what he has said. This is how you abide in him. It's not through a cool beat of a new song. It's not through some coincidence that everything, it's not through a mystical experience. It is through the revealed word of God. And so abiding in him is abiding in the teachings of him. And this is part of what, what John is saying, not only through Jesus, recording Jesus' words in John 15, but also in 2 John that we're being told, don't go on ahead. Notice this and fill it in. The teachings of Christ show us who he is. And who is he? He's the incarnate. That means made in the flesh. He is the incarnate creator, son of God. 
This is God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, showing up on earth for a mission. And so we see who Jesus is. Not only we see who Jesus is, but we see what he does. Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. This was my mission. And so when we see what he does, notice this out there to the side, he lays down his life for his own. He's going to save those who are his. And he does that on the cross of Calvary. And then notice this, the teachings of Christ show us the way of salvation in Christ. This is the way of salvation. This is God's plan for you to be saved. How can you be saved? You look to Christ, you look to Christ and Christ alone. We've just sung it. I mean, it's, it's not in what I wear, it's not in a prayer that I pray, it's not in my gifts that I give, it's not in the service that I render. We've just sung a song, it's not in me, but it's all in you. I mean, this is the clarity of the gospel. And let, let me tell you that if, we, if we're wondering, do, in, do people go beyond the gospel where it is, let me just share with you that for those of you who have been around for a while, we appropriately emphasize the Reformation in the month of October. We talk about the fact that in the 1500s, God was really bringing to a culmination a, a work that he had begun a few hundred years earlier in waking the church up to the fact that the quote-unquote church that we see in Rome and in Europe had gone way ahead of the gospel. They had left the teachings of Christ, and they had come up with very elaborate doctrines that said, oh, you need Jesus, but you also need good works. And if you don't have good works, you can't be saved. You need Jesus, but you also need the priest's intercession and confession to the priest. And if you don't have that, you can't be saved. You need, good, you need Jesus, but you also need the Pope who can speak ex cathedra and declare things and can offer indulgences. You see, and so the reformers came along and they said, no, that is not the way of salvation in Christ. That is not at all what the Bible says. And so there was a desire to reform what was the great Roman Catholic Church. So somewhere along the way, a thousand years earlier, the false teachers had won the argument in the halls of the churches, in the halls of the Vatican, and in the halls of Rome, the streets of Rome, and that false doctrine had become the doctrine of much of the world's church. Not every church. I believe that there were faithful churches um, all the way through. But we see that there was a great deception, and the reformers came away saying, wait a minute, there's a bunch of people who went on ahead, and they've lost the way of salvation in Christ. They've added to it, and that's why the five solas were, um, were developed, the five solas were the cry of the Reformation, and maybe you remember those, sola scriptura, the idea of only scripture. It's not the councils. It's not the traditions. It's not the pope. It's not, it's only scripture is the authority. We must look to scripture. And what does scripture say? It says it's, salvation is only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone can we be saved. And so if you think with me and you remember with me the Reformation, they were correcting all of this as best they could. And then why are we saved? It's not for the glory of man. It's sola deo gloria. It is for the glory of God. And so we see abiding in Christ cannot be separated from abiding in the teachings of Christ. It's the teachings of Christ which cause us to have eternal life. Look at the last one that is there. And it's not only about the way of salvation, but it's also it shows us, the teachings of Christ show us the way of living in Christ. So this shows you how to live, not just what to believe, but if you really believe it, how to live. 
and we see a lot of the teaching of God's Word is about not just that you need to know the right thing and believe the right thing, but you need to do the right thing. You need to live as unto God. And we see over and over again, if somebody claims that they know me, and we see this in 1 John that we've studied over this last year, if somebody says that, hey, I know God, and he doesn't love his brother, you know what he's called? A liar. Thank you. And we even see here, if you go on and you leave the teaching, you don't have God. You simply don't have God. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 through 11. The apostle Paul abides in the teachings of Christ. And this is a beautiful passage that helps us see this from a yet another angle. I want you to see this. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, by the way, he had equivalent of two PhDs by the time he was 22 years old. So the Apostle Paul had a lot of acclaim. He was trained in the school of Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. He was knowledgeable. He was obviously bright and had great power. And he was a zealot on top of that. I mean, he was trying to stamp out these followers of Christ at the beginning when he was Saul. But notice what happens. Verse 7, whatever gain I had, all of his acclaims, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. So he even disregards them in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through what? Faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, let's read it out loud together. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, he knows that his salvation is wrapped up in remaining in Christ, in staying with Christ, never leaving Christ. And so notice this. Fill this in. So those who know him know his salvation. They live in him. They die in him. They stay with him. And they will be raised by him to walk in eternal life with him. This is the importance of staying in the gospel, staying with Christ. Notice the last statement there. However, those who leave him... They go on from him in false teaching or disobedient living, simply prove that they do not have God. And that's what verse 9 says. Can you look at verse 9 with me? Let's see, see it again. Look what it says up there. As the Father, excuse me, at the top of the page, in the box on the top of the page, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of Christ does not have God. But whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. And that is the very clear indicator that someone who properly understands who Jesus is understands that, that they're beginning to see and understand that this Lord Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, God with us, the Father and the Son. By the way, there were people in that day and time who would say, oh, I have the Father, but I don't have the Son because the Son is not God. You see, they were denying the deity of Jesus. That's part of the falsehoods, the deceivers that we're teaching. The next thing that I want us to notice here um, in verse 10 and 11, I notice two things here. Look at verse 10. If, and this is on the last page, page three. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Look at verse 11, and let's read verse 11 out loud. 
For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So the first thing I want you to notice here is from verse 11. Notice that the work of the false teachers who do not stay in the teachings of Christ is called wicked. Their work is wicked. That means evil. That means from Satan. Look at verse 11. Whoever greets him takes part in his wicked work. So this is a serious problem. This isn't a minor issue, church. When we alter the gospel and we start teaching a different gospel, when we go on from the gospel that's been given and start adding other things to it, that is wicked. We need to see that that is a serious issue. It's not a small issue. And then notice this, because they are wicked, they are not to be tolerated or accommodated. So these works that these false teachers are doing are not to be tolerated. You cannot tolerate wicked work. You cannot accommodate wicked work. Look at verse 10. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Well, let's first of all recognize, first bullet point there is recognize that this is not indicating we are not to associate with unbelievers. This is not saying that you should not have an unbeliever in your house, that you should not greet an unbeliever. In fact, you may even have someone around you that's very involved with a cult. You may have someone around you that's very involved with another religion or is a non-religion, an atheist. Well, if we don't receive them into our house, if we don't greet them, how in the world are they to even come to know this Jesus whom we love who we would say to them, if you hear his voice, turn to him and believe. He can save you from your sin. How could we do that? So that's not the problem. Notice this, and fill this in on the next bullet point there. This is referring to false gospel teachers, those who distort the truth of Christ. These are the ones that you're not to give quarter in your home. These are the ones that you shouldn't even greet. These are the ones that there's a harsh, full stop when it comes to them. Because, you see, they're claiming to have the truth, and they maybe even have heard the truth in the past, but now they are teaching for another purpose, and they are dangerous, and they are destructive, and they are sent by Satan. You see, there are... <laughs> You know, this isn't the type thing where we just say, oh, it's okay, you can believe whatever you want to believe, and I'll just believe whatever I want to believe, and we go on as if there's no difference. We are to have a hard stop. Notice what it says here. Don't do anything that can be construed that you accept their doctrine or their lifestyle. You, as Christians, we must not let anyone confuse them with us. And so the picture is, don't help them in their ministry. And in this case, it was don't give them a place to stay because they'd be traveling teachers, they'd be traveling preachers. And the false guy would show up and maybe he would even come with some nice spices from the, the region next door or I guess they didn't have chocolate back then. Um, but, you know, he would come bearing gifts and he would be, you know, good looking and he'd smell good and he'd sound good and he'd be a smooth talker. We see that in the scripture. Very often they were smooth talkers. And they would come into a church and they would, they would seek to accommodate. And they, they would, somebody would say, well, why don't you come stay with us? And after a little while, they're staying there at someone's house in the church and they're coming to worship on a regular basis. And before very long, someone says, man, that guy's really smart. Did you hear what he said? Did you hear him pray? Wow. We, we ought to ask him to speak sometime. Do you see how it happens? He's weaseled his way into the church, ingratiating himself to the people and the people to himself. And so then we see. And so John is saying, man, if they're teaching a different gospel, don't do it. And some of them were known at this point. They were known as going from city to city and place to set place. And look what it says here, don't be friendly with them. He says, don't give them 
any greeting. Do not even greet them. So here's two points to this on why this would be the case. Number one, the false teacher needs to know that you disagree and do not approve of them. That is an appropriate thing for someone who is twisting the glorious gospel of Christ to know from a true believer. I don't agree with you. You're wrong. I'm not going to support what you're doing. Number two, it is important that those watching need to know that you disagree with them and do not approve them. So if you're a Christian and they see you accepting this person, giving quarter to this person, supporting this person in some way, shape, or form, and and recognizing them, because you see at this time, there were many places, many cities in the Roman Empire that the Christians were well known at this point. And the false teachers were coming in and they would love to ride on the coattails of a faithful church when they come into a new town. And if you, boy, if you go to Sheridan Hills and everything and, and they start to see this guy hanging around Sheridan Hills, then other people might think, hey, well, he must be solid. He must be good because he's in good with them. I want to tell you a couple of stories here from church history about this. The historian Irenaeus, he was born in 130 AD and he died around 202, um, but Irenaeus, um, he tells of an encounter between the early church leader Polycarp and the heretic Marcion. Marcion was a heretic that had lived and preached for a long time. He took the gospel, he twisted it. We won't go into his, his Marsonian um, heresy, but notice this. Marcion asked Polycarp one time, do you know me? Polycarp replied, I do know you, the firstborn of Satan. Wow. Doesn't that sound kind of like Jesus with false teachers? Jesus did not engage harshly with the common people of his day. He did not engage harshly with the deceived crowds. Jesus reserved his harshest criticism for the teachers that deceived the people. That's whom Jesus looked at them and said, your father is the devil. That's why you don't accept me. And that's why you don't believe the truth. Your father is the father of lies. He looked around at them and he said, you brood of serpents. (laughs) Jesus did not mince words when it came to false teachers. He let them have it. And there was a holy anger that he had over their great failure in misleading the people of God. Does that make sense? You just read through your Gospels, read the Gospels, see who Jesus leveled his greatest criticism. It wasn't even at Herod or Pilate. It was at his own people who were false teachers, people in the Jewish nation. Think about that for us. Think about that for your own life, who you listen to and what you do with your spiritual life and what you grow in. You need to be very careful about who you, because many of the heresies, many of the false doctrines, many of the going on ahead of the gospel is very insidious. It's very incremental. I've spoken with my own daughters, and in their age group, there's many, many young people that are listening to different teachers on on Christianity and different movements in this, and it's something called deconstructionism, and and coming to deconstruct faith, and they, they start talking about all the things that they don't believe more than they recognize the things that they do believe. These are perilous times that God's word over and over says, be careful, watch yourselves, stay in the truth. Jesus gave us John 15, abide in me, abide, 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 abide in me. That's a major theme for us. There's another example, Irenaeus also records, the historian records, 
that the Apostle John encountered the heretic Serinthius at a public bathhouse in Ephesus. Now, just so you know, in the Roman Empire, not everybody had a, 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 a bathroom with free-flowing water in their own house. Only the really wealthy and even the wealthy. The, the, the Romans built beautiful places. They would build public toilets so that all their city would be clean. They even had ceramic um, piping and all kinds of uh, uh, plumbing that would carry all of that, those things away, bring in fresh water and carry away things. So, so it was very common to go down to the center of town. Um, that's where very often um, there, there would be toilet areas, but there would also be these beautiful bathhouses. And, um, you know, in this day and time, I think it's kind of creepy to go most of those. I wouldn't do that. Typically, that's just me in this day and time. But, and, and there was some creepiness that happened in general at Roman bathhouses, but not usually. Usually, it was just kind of a plain, upstanding place. They would have a calderium. What was the calderium? What was that room? That was the hot room. It was the cauldron. So you would go in. They had fires that would burn underneath the building, heat up that part of the bathhouse. They would pour water over the, the hot stones so they, they would have steam sauna. They would have uh, dry heat. I mean, they had it all figured out. And then they had things that were like hot tubs but without the bubbles and everything else. Um, but they had hot water. You would go in that. And then after you were in that for a while, you'd go into what? The frigidarium. So the cold area was the hot one, the frigid area. And then you'd run over to jump in the cold one, and that would be very refreshing, very painful in my opinion, but um, <laughs> very refreshing. And then you get back in the hot one, and then you get back in the cold one. And it was very, very common to spend, you know, several hours at that place. It was a place of socialization. The rooms were big, lots of people around. They're talking. That's where you hear the news. That's where even philosophers would sometimes go there and hang out and talk. And so it was kind of an upstanding thing to do, depending on what century you're looking at. But at this time, it, it's reasonable to think that, that, you know, you would go there to get clean. You would go there to, to kind of bathe. And there would be people there. We'll notice this one. Irenaeus also records that the Apostle John encountered the heretic, Serenthus, at a public bathhouse in Ephesus, John turned around and immediately left, saying to his colleagues with him, let us go. This bathhouse could fall down because Serenaeus, the enemy of the truth, is within. So John isn't going to greet him. He's popular, he's powerful, and John says, I'll have no part of this. Now, John may well could have spoken with numerous other politicians and Roman pagans hanging out at the bathhouse, but he wasn't going to deal with the person twisting the gospel of Jesus. This means that you need to be careful who you read in this day and time. One of the greatest ways that Christians in this day and time can be deceived is by watching stuff on YouTube by watching stuff on the hair channel, you know, the, the, the Christian station, whatever that is, where they have fancy hairdos, and by reading their stuff. Don't give it quarter in your life. Be very careful that you know the background. Do the research. Let us help you. Find, rely. there are plenty of great, solid Bible teachers for you to listen to and stuff that you can read from R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur and John Piper and Tim Keller and, I mean, all kinds of other people that are faithful to the gospel of Christ. That's how we violate this in this day and time, is that we can listen to the wrong things. So that's really the great power of this letter. That's really the great warning of this letter. And I pray that this helps Sheridan Hills step it up that much more, that we're going to be vigilant, that we're careful to who we listen to. A lot of times in emails, I will send out, hey, here's a podcast you ought to listen to. Hey, here's a series that I think is really great. Hey, and you know what? You can start to latch on to some of those. And, and why would we do that? One, because the material maybe is really helpful for where we are right now in our church or maybe a lot of people in their personal lives, but also to help you start to see 
who perhaps are more solid teachers than others that may be leading many astray. Well, I want us to three, see three observations of the closing farewell. And uh, we'll be done here in just a minute. Look what verse 12, look what it says. These are the last two verses of the entire letter. He writes, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. And then he gives the final word, the children of your elect sister greet you. And so the idea of there are other Christians all around that greet you as this church if we understand this to the elect sister to be a particular church. And so um, I want you to notice three things from these two verses. Number one, notice that true Christians, true Christians can share a deep brotherly love. True Christians can share a deep brotherly love. Look what he says in verse 12. Though I have much to write you, I'd rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy can be complete. You see, there's, there's, there's sharing. There's, these are emotional words. And then he leaves it with a greeting. Man, the other people around you, they greet you. They love you. That's the picture that is here. We are to share a deep brotherly love. You know, you can believe all the right things and not have love for one another, and it just makes your church dead. Sheridan Hills has to be very careful about that. We seek to teach the truth. We can seek to get our theology right. But if our theology just is all about what we believe and not really about what we do, and especially as it relates to other, other church members, then we are dead in our faith. If we have not love, we are a clanging symbol. If we have not love, we do not see the whole gospel. True Christians can share a deep brotherly love. We see that here. Number two, true, notice that true Christians have a lot to share. They have a lot to share. The deep things of God that bring joy. Notice this, what he says, though I have much to write to you. I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. Here's the deal. He has, he has so much more that he wants to say than can be written. You know, when we get together, when you are doing koinonia, when you're spending time with different groups in the life of the church, I hope that you're talking about more than what kind of tires you put on your car this week or who won the last game or you know, how in the world do you get this mashed potatoes to be so creamy? I mean, it's fine to talk about that. It's fine to be there. But, you know, we ought to have some reserved time for us to look at each other and talk about things that really matter. We ought to be a deeper people than the world. When you get together in your community group, it would be great if one of you just kind of says, hey, so what's going on in your lives or somebody else, you know, what can we pray for? How can we do, you know, what's, what's happening with you? We should not be surfacy all the time. We ought to be a people who love to go deep with one another and to encourage one another and to celebrate the truth together. That's what John really wanted. The third thing I want you to notice here Notice that face-to-face -face communication should be a priority. Face-to-face -face communication should be a priority. So here's the deal. It's kind of funny to me, and I know you're going to start packing up. Don't do that yet. Just, just hang on with this point with me. It's funny to me that 2,000 years ago, there was a medium that they would write and send a letter and it wasn't as good as being face-to-face. -face. Listen, church. All of our social media and communicating in short bursts of a few characters is killing us. I had an appointment with a doctor this week out at Cleveland Clinic, 
and he went on a rampage about that. I mean, we were just talking, we were talking about two or three different things, and then he just brought up this idea that, man, you know, I, I think it probably has to do with his kids. I think it probably has to do with the people in the office. I think it probably has to do with other friends and colleagues. But he just said, man, whatever happened to conversation? Whatever happened to us really dealing with stuff? And I know, and I just want to say, the younger you are, kids, um, the more you're growing up in a, in a world that seeks to communicate with a few lines and a few phrases at a time. And I want to encourage you to push back against that. I want to encourage you to be willing to go sit with your parents, to go sit with your grandparents, to develop friends that know how to talk, and to, to have discussions and sometimes it's just fun, easy stuff, but sometimes it's deep stuff. And, and learn how to do that. Um, we have a family member that gets upset whenever somebody starts clearing the table after dinner. And somebody says, just leave it. Let's talk. It's beautiful. Just leave it alone. Let's talk. Well, the plates will all get crusty and everything. Well, so what? That's what this thing, you know, the dishwasher will take care of that. In France, and I, I do love being in Europe at different times for different reasons like this. I'll never forget going to dinner for the first time with one of our neighbors. We sat at the table for five hours, and it was awesome. I'm not kidding. The food just kept coming out of the kitchen, and the conversation would get better and better. Of course, a few of them were three sheets to the wind, so it was entertaining, but I mean, the... It was, it was rich. When I go to Larry and Deirdre's house, we just sit and talk. Do you do that? Or are we always running on to the next thing? The Bible shows us how to live. The Bible shows us how to have Joy. Look what it says. I know some of you already packed up. Look what the verse says at verse 11, or in verse 10. He says, so that your joy may be complete. Verse, verse 12 says, so that our joy may be complete. That's the picture here. So there's, a much, there's much to retain from this in this little letter. We see the love. We see the importance of truth. We see the importance of being warned we see the importance of vigilantly defending our doctrine in even practical ways in which we can do that. And we see the beauty of Christian fellowship. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together as we go today. Lord, I pray that you would help us to not tolerate or accommodate false teachers. I pray that we would see all the warnings of your word that say, be careful what you believe and who you listen to. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember that the great teacher is not even some of the great celebrity pastors that we've mentioned, men or even women that that teach other women as gifted as all of them may be. Lord, it's not Andrew Coleman or Jason Hill or, Brian or Ben Nister or William Lawler or Ted Capella or Jim Brizzo. The great teacher is your Holy Spirit. And if there's any teacher that we need to pursue always, Lord, it's the Spirit that allows the Word to become illumined in our hearts. So Lord, protect us from trying to gain things that the world offers in some way, either emotionally or in some other quick fix. Instead, Lord, I pray that we would take the time to be in your word, to know your words, to know your teachings. And Lord, that we would remain in them that we would not go on ahead. Now, Lord, I believe that there may be some today who have never truly received the great teaching 
that Jesus died on the cross in their place. And Father, I pray that their need for you would become very clear. I pray that, that they would see that they are sinners in need of repentance and belief. And Father, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that they would turn from their sin and say, I need this Jesus. And I want to know that I know that I know that he is my Lord and Savior. So Lord, I pray for that even right now. And Lord, I pray for those who maybe need to talk to somebody today before they leave here over their own salvation or another issue in their life. Lord, I pray that they'd not leave here today without looking and listening to you. Father, we give to you thanks. We thank you for your word that so beautifully addresses the issues in our lives. It's in the strong and powerful name of Jesus, God's people said, amen. Amen.